But in order to understand why God even brought the nation of Israel to existence, we have to get a little bit of background of what happened before God began to bring that nation into existence. And so the first thing we look at here is a command that God gave to Noah and his family right after they came off the ark after the flood there in Genesis had taken place. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, the first command that God gave to Noah and his family was this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, God was saying to what was left of humanity after the flood, don't stay together in one location. Spread out over the earth and populate the entire earth. Well, tragically, when we come to chapter 11, we find that several generations after Noah, his descendants rebelled against that command of God. In Genesis chapter 11, And verse 1, this is what uh, we read. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. By the way, the, the land of Shinar is where the nation of Iraq is today. And afterward became known as Babylon. And they dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Notice that last statement. That was a rebuttal of what God had commanded to mankind right after they came off the ark after the flood. They didn't want to spread out and populate the entire earth. They wanted to stay together. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have managed to do. What God was saying was this. You see what they're able to do in rebelling against my command when they are all united as one mankind and one common language. They didn't have different languages up to this point of time. And God said if we allow this process to continue on indefinitely, there's no end to the evil that man will be capable of bringing about here upon planet Earth. So this is what he says, verse 7. Go to, let us go down. And there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them. Notice, he's going against what they were doing, and they're reviving against him. By God causing them now to begin speaking different languages, they were forced to separate from each other because they couldn't understand each other. They're what became known as Babel. And so they were forced now to scatter apart from each other and go to different parts of the world. There were two significant things that began now for the first time in mankind's history. First, different languages now began to take place as a result of a form of judgment against the rebellion of these descendants of Noah and the rest of his family. But those different languages, as they forced the people to separate from each other, now gave birth to nations, different nations for the first time. In planet Earth. Up until the confusion of the languages, they could communicate with each other and understand each other. 
But I take it one morning they came out to work in the building project and to their amazement they couldn't understand each other because they were all speaking different languages. That forced them to separate and to get away from each other. And so here's one group at Babel that spoke one language in common with their little group but different from all the rest. They separated from the rest. They migrated to another part of the world and on the base of their language began to build a nation. Second group that spoke a second language there had to separate from the rest that didn't understand them. They went to a secondary of the world and began to build another nation. And so it went. Now mankind was forced by God, confusing their language, to separate, scatter upon the face of the earth, begin populating the world as he originally commanded after the flood. But now those different languages begin to give birth to different nations. Now what's intriguing to me is, if you begin with verse 10, here of chapter 11, after God brought this judgment upon these people at Babel, and you read down to the end of chapter 11, you find that God very quickly narrowed down one line of human descent to one man named Abram, who later on would be called Abraham. In light of what was going on there at Babel, rebelling against God, and God forced them to separate, and now they're building uh, new nations and everything, God narrows down the line of descent to one man, Abram. Now, there was something else here the Bible doesn't record, but secular historical records record took place there. It was called ancient Babel. Secular historians point out that around 2500 B.C., what we would understand from a biblical viewpoint, the, false, the first false religion after the flood developed there in the plain of Shinar. And by, by this time, the city of Ur of the Chaldees was part there of what was there at the plain of Shinar. We point out here with uh, Roman numeral 4 in our outline, the original false religion after the flood. We indicate that as early as the 25th century B.C., people of Ur of the Chaldees in Samaria worshipped a mother goddess named Ishtar. The people invented this, first false religion. About uh, three centuries later, around the 22nd century B.C., the Babylonians conquered Samaria. And the Babylonians adopted the worship of the Sumerian mother goddess Ishtar. And ancient Babylonian records indicate that the Babylonians called this mother goddess the Virgin, the Holy Virgin, the Virgin Mother, Goddess of Goddesses, Queen of Heaven and Earth, and archaeologists who have uncovered ruins of the ancient Babylonian system found clay tablets in which in the Babylonian language they inscribed words of worship that they would give to this false goddess that they called the Queen of Heaven. And here's some of the things that, that they found in these things. They exclaimed, Ishtar is great. Ishtar is queen. My lady is exalted. My lady is queen. There's none like unto her. They called her shining light of heaven, light of the world, enlightener of all the places where men dwell, who gathers together the host of the nations. They claimed of her, where thou glancest, the dead come to life. The sick rise and walk. The mind of the disease is healed when it looks upon thy face. And the ancient uh, records indicate that in Babylonian mythology, Ishtar, wore a crown on her head, and was related to Tammuz, who sometimes they portrayed as her infant son in her arms. 
In light of that, Roman numeral five, the development of pagan idolatrous religions. Pagan idolatrous religions. Again, secular historians who have uncovered these records of this false goddess called Ishtar, they point out that these, uh, this false religion spread to the nations. As the nations, people were separated, they were carrying this with them and incorporating the worship of this queen of heaven, goddess, in the different nations. Uh, the Egyptians adopted it. And although they used the same title, queen of heaven, their personal name they assigned to the queen of heaven was Isis. Isis. The Greeks adopted it. Some of them called her Epaphrodite. The Romans adopted it. Some of them called her Venus. And the Phoenicians adopted it as well. In fact, the Phoenicians, where you had the city-states of Tyre and Sidon, made this part of Baal worship in their false religion. And so what secular stories point out is that this original false religion after the flood turned people away from the acknowledgement of worship of the one true God and became the fountainhead of the development of pagan idolatrous religions. And now the nations began to peek into existence by uh, images of stone and wood or metal, other gods and goddesses that they would invent, purely man-made, purely man-made. Now, Roman numeral six in our outline, God's response to the false religion of the nations. We point out again, it's significant to note that in the same chapter, Genesis chapter 11, that records the rebellion of mankind after the flood and God's judgment of that rebellion, the human line of descent from verse 10 of chapter 11 to the end traced down to one particular man named Abram who left the city of Ur over there at Chaldea and the source of the original false religion after the flood. So when Abram left Ur of the Chaldees, he was leaving the geographical area, which was the original source of this first false religion after the flood. And uh, he was instructed to go to the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. So now, the end of chapter 11, the focus comes to one man by the name of Abram. Then, chapter 12 picks up with God speaking to that man named Abram. Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. We see that God commanded Abram to go to the land of Canaan and promised to make him a great nation. Notice, in light of the way the other nations have gone, they've rejected the worship of the true and the living God and they've substituted false gods and goddesses in place of the true and the living God, God's determined, I'm going to raise up a new nation through this man named Abram. And this one is going to be a great nation, a great nation. We read here, Genesis 12, 1 and 2, Now the Lord had said to Abram, he had already said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. The idea here is this, in light of how the nations of the world had gone apostate away from the true and the living God through false religion, God thereby revealed his intention to bring a new nation into existence through Abraham's biological line of descent. This new nation would be great, not just in size, but great in significance. That's really the emphasis here. And by the way, the Gentile nations of God, often the pagan worship, 
of man-made gods and goddesses. God was going to bring into existence a great nation that would be great in significance because of how God would work through that nation to accomplish his purpose for history. This is very significant things that are being revealed to us here. Now, Roman numeral 7. God's declaration that he is the one who brought this new nation into existence. If you were to go over to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. In the context, God is talking about the nation of Israel. And this is what God says. God claimed that he created this nation. He formed this nation. He made Israel. He purposefully was bringing this nation to existence to play a key role in the accomplishment of God's plan and purpose for history. Roman numeral 8, God's preparation of Israel for the purposes of its existence. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 15, uh, God is interacting with Abraham. And uh, God has told Abraham, I'm going to give this land of Canaan, in which you're now living, to you and your seed after you. And then he said to him in uh, verse 16 of chapter 15, in the fourth generation, in other words, four generations after you, they, your, your people, shall come hither again, for the nickel of the Amorites is not yet full. But he said that uh, before that, he's talking here, I'm going to restore your people back to this land that I'm giving to you. But he tells them why he has to restore it. Look, if you would, please. Verse 13 of chapter 15. God said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. They shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Notice, God is foretelling years ahead of time, two or three generations ahead of time, your biological descendants are going to migrate down to a, a different nation. And they're going to end up being enslaved by that nation. They're going to serve that nation for about 400 years. And then I'm going to bring them out of that nation and bring them back here to this land that I'm going to give to your descendants as a possession forever. As a possession forever. Well, what nation was he foretelling they would go to? Obviously, the nation of Egypt. And if you read the latter part of Genesis, it explains how that happened. They went down there. And then, when you come to Exodus, chapter 1, we find out there was a new pharaoh that came to the throne who didn't know Joseph. One of uh, Abram's biological descendants who got down there into the province of God, got into a high position with the Egyptian government. But there was a new pharaoh after the 400 years of slavery or so, came to the throne to the, uh, of Egypt, according to Exodus chapter 1, who didn't know Joseph. And that Pharaoh enslaved the people of Israel there in the land of Egypt. And they abused the people of Israel sorely for about four centuries. Four centuries. And God said there in Genesis 15 ahead of time, but they're going to come out after those four centuries with great wealth. Now, how did God do that? Well, if you would please look at verse uh, Roman numeral 18, at the bottom of the next page here. God's preparation of Israel for the purposes of its existence. 
the very fact that God foretold years ahead of time to Abraham, this is what's going to happen to your descendants. Sometime after you, they're going to migrate to another land and they're going to end up serving the people of that land, be enslaved by the people of that land for about 400 years. But then your descendants are going to come out of that slavery with great wealth. The fact that God foretold this ahead of time implies this was God's plan for the people of Israel. He wanted them to get down there and be enslaved for about 400 years as God's way of preparing Israel for the purposes for which he brought this nation into existence. And the more I study this, I've concluded there are three reasons why God wanted the Jews down there and suffer the way they did. The first reason was this, to experience firsthand through slavery the brutal, perverted practices of people who worship false man-made gods. I really believe God wanted to, the Jews to experience this and see how brutal and inhuman people who worship false gods can become to other people in abusive treatment. And he wanted, in essence, the Jews to get a belly full of that to see the tragic consequences of people worshiping false gods. I want you to experience, to experience the bitterness of how horrible people who worship false gods can be to other people and subject them and just abuse them tremendously as slaves. I think there was a second reason why God wanted them down there to prepare for his ultimate purposes for this nation. And that is to demonstrate very graphically to the people of Israel the futility of worshiping false man-made gods. As you know from the book of Genesis, while the Jews were there enslaved, God sent ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And historians point out each one of those plagues was an attack against one of the false gods or goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped. There's been a whole book written on that. Each one of those plagues was an attack upon at least ten of the false gods and goddesses the Egyptians worshipped. And God did that purposely to demonstrate to the people of Israel, these gods and goddesses are not real gods and goddesses. They're contrary to reality. And the way you demonstrate that is, while I'm pouring out all these judgments upon them and their people, they can't do a thing. These gods and goddesses can't do a thing to stop what I'm doing to the nation of Egypt. These are totally man-made blocks of wood or stone or metal they can't see, they can't hear, they can't talk, they can't walk, they can't do anything. They're totally helpless. They can't do a thing to fend off the judgments I'm bringing upon the land of Egypt. He wanted the Jews to see this firsthand. Man-made gods and goddesses can't do a thing. They just sit there as a dumb image. They can't even feed themselves, let alone anything else. And then I'm convinced the third reason he wanted them there was to demonstrate the fact that there is a God who actually exists and is very powerful and can intervene supernaturally into human events and national events upon planet Earth. And so that God demonstrated that tremendously, not only through the plagues, but by forcing Pharaoh, breaking down Pharaoh's stubborn will, to let the people of Israel go free from their bondage and slavery. And... The, the Egyptians were so anxious to get rid of these people that they said, we keep them here 
we're going to be devastated and put out of existence. So they began giving gold and silver and all the valuable things to the Jews just to get out of here, get out of here as fast as they can. But as you know, they no sooner left than they came to a natural barrier, the Red Sea. They didn't have any boats with which to cross over to the other side. And then Satan grabs hold of Pharaoh's heart and says, What a fool you were to let these free slaves slip so easily through your fingers, pursue them. So he sends his chariot force after them. And now the Jews seem to be, humanly speaking, between a rock and a hard place. How are they going to get across the Red Sea without being taken captive again or maybe killed right on the borders of the, of the west shore of the Red Sea? And God demonstrates again there is a, a God who actually exists with incredible power. And God actually parts the waters of the Red Sea to allow the people of Israel to go safely to the other side. And when they were there and Pharaoh gave the command for his chariot force to pursue them, God allowed the waters to come back in and wiped out that great military force that Pharaoh had in the nation of Egypt. God, I think, wanted the Jews down there for those 400 years to demonstrate the fact how brutal people can be who worship false gods and goddesses. And also that these gods and goddesses they worship are contrary to reality. They're no spirit beings that you could call this god or this goddess. They can't do a thing. But I'm demonstrating to you, people of Israel, there is a God who truly exists. The one who broke Pharaoh's stubborn will through the ten plagues. And the one who parted the waters of the Red Sea to bring you across safely to the other side. This, I believe, was God's way of preparing the nation of Israel for the major purposes he brought that nation into existence. It lied the way the Gentile nations went away from him, rejecting him as the true and the living God, and manufacturing their false gods and goddesses with their own hands. Now, notice what we read here in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 5, where God says, I am the Lord your God. He's saying this to the people of Israel. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 5. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. God's laying it down to them. I brought you out of your bondage and slavery from Egypt for you to worship exclusively me as the only true and the living God who is ultimate reality and not get sucked into false man-made images that are imaginations of unsaved man here upon planet Earth. Now, in light of that preparation, Roman numeral 9, we want to now begin dealing with the unique purposes that God had for that nation and why he allowed them there in Egypt in bondage for 400 years to prepare them for these purposes. The first purpose was this, capital A, under Roman numeral 9, was to have a permanent, unique relationship with God. For the nation of Israel to have a permanent, unique relationship with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, after the Jews came out of Egypt, Moses says to them, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. What he's saying is, God has singled you out as a nation for a unique relationship with him that he doesn't give to any other nation here upon planet Earth. And it's important to note, this was not a temporary 
unique relationship between God and the people of Israel. If you were to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and uh, verses 23 and 24, centuries later, King David, be moved by the Spirit of God, penned these words, and he's speaking through these words to God. 2 Samuel 7, verses 23 and 24. And what one nation in the earth is like your people? Even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for your land, before your people, which you redeemed to you from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. Notice he's saying, God, you redeemed your people of Israel, of the nation of Egypt, and away from their gods, their false gods. For you have confirmed to yourself your people Israel to be a people unto you for how long? Forever. You have redeemed to yourself your people of Israel to be a people unto you forever. And you, Lord, are become their God. David's making it very clear. This unique relationship that God established between him and the nation of Israel that he doesn't give to any other nation upon planet earth. It's not a temporary unique relationship between God and Israel. It's a permanent, forever unique relationship between God and the nation of Israel. And so that God brought Israel into a unique relationship with him that he doesn't give to any other nation upon planet Earth. And notice, uh, he goes on to say, and Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45 says this, and I'll give you other references where God repeated it again and again. I'm the Lord which brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. The reason I brought you out of the land of Egypt is to be your God. The one that you will worship exclusively. Me. Not these false gods and goddesses that Egyptians and other nations have man-made and that they bow down before and worship. So that was the first purpose that God has for Israel, to have a permanent, unique relationship with him that he doesn't give to any other nation upon planet Earth. Second purpose he has was this, to be a holy nation, to be a holy nation. After they come out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, where God calls Moses to the top of the mountain to give Israel a covenant, the Mosaic Law covenant, God finally, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, begins to reveal to Israel Here's my purpose for you as a nation. This is what I brought you in existence to be. And one of those was this. You are to be a holy nation to me. You are to be a holy nation to me. You shall be to me a holy nation. And Moses also said in Deuteronomy 7, 6, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. I point out here the word holy literally means divided. It's what the word holy literally means, divided. So to be holy is to be divided from other persons and things. Divided in the sense that you're different, you're distinct, you're unique in contrast with other persons and things. And therefore, when God at Mount Sinai says to Israel, here's one of my purposes I brought to existence is this. You are to be a holy nation to me. A holy nation to me. In other words, I have brought you to existence to be totally Different, distinct, unique, in contrast with all these other nations. You know what the other nations have become. They've rejected me as the only true and the living God. And they've substituted their own 
man-made gods, the pigments of their unsaved imagination. I have brought you into existence to be different from every other nation upon planet Earth up to this point. They're often false god worship. I intend you to be different from them in the sense that I'm the only god that you worship, the true and the living god. You're never to worship any other gods whatsoever because all the other gods are non-existent. Again, they're a figment of unsaved man's imagination. But I've demonstrated to you graphically, Israel, there is a God who actually exists. He's not a figment of man's imagination. I've demonstrated through the power that he used to bring you out of Egypt to part the waters of the Red Sea and, and bring you now toward the land that I promised to give to you. So he's saying here, that he divided Israel from all of the nations in the sense that he intended that nation to be different from the pagan Gentile nations. The Gentile nations worship many gods. Israel was to worship Yahweh exclusively. And so in Exodus 34, verse 14, he says, You shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, is a jealous God. Make it very clear then, one of the purposes I brought you in existence is for you to be different from all the other nations and the way they've gone away from me and substituting the worship of me with the worship of false gods and goddesses. Then he also said there at Mount Sinai, again in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, here's the third purpose which he brought the nation of existence. To be the spiritual leader of the whole world. The way he put it, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. He's saying that to the whole nation. Not just the separate priests that God raised up for them to offer sacrifice and everything. He saved the whole nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. In other words, I have brought you into existence as a nation to be the spiritual leader of the whole world. To lead these pagan Gentile nations back to me, the true and the living God. And to reject and scrap the false gods and goddesses they brought in existence and substitute of the worship of me. And I point out uh, some, a statement here that a, a Greek scholar has made. He says, here the reference is to Israel's relation to the nations. When God says, you are to be a, a kingdom of priests, he was thereby saying to them, here is the relationship I intend for you to have with regard to the other nations. You're to be the spiritual leader of the whole world. To lead the pagan Gentile nations back into right relationship with the only God who actually exists is ultimate reality. And uh, in other words, God appointed Israel to be his mediator between God and the Gentile nations. And this is one of the reasons that God gave the Mosaic law just to the nation of Israel. God never intended the Mosaic law for the other nations of the world. He gave it exclusively to the nation of Israel. And Paul states that in, in uh, Romans chapter 2, that uh, th he didn't give the law to the Gentiles. He gave it exclusively to the nation of Israel. And that law was very rigid. It was very rigid. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 9, we point out here, described the Mosaic law, a ministry of death and, and condemnation. What do you mean by that? Well, according to the Mosaic Law, if you worship a false god, what was to be done to you? You were executed. You would be executed. If you were a false prophet, 
leading Jews away from the worship of the true of the living God to worship false gods, you were to be executed. If you committed adultery, you were to be executed. And on and on and on it went. Paul in 2 Corinthians makes it very clear. The law was not a means of life. It was a means of death. It was a ministry of condemnation and death. And one of the reasons God clamped that nation under the law was his way of removing rebels from the nation. As soon as they would start the rebellion, so that the rebellious attitudes would not affect the, the minds and thinking of other Jews and thereby lead Israel away from the true and the living God off into apostasy and false worship. That's why he made the law so rigid and so strict, just for the people of Israel. Because he intended them to remain loyal exclusively to him and no other god or goddess. And therefore he wanted all rebels to be removed immediately through death from the nation before the rebellious attitudes could affect the whole nation and turn them away from, from the true and the living God. Now, here's a fourth purpose that God had then for them. And this ties in with his purpose to be spiritually the world. He appointed Israel to be God's witnesses to the world. Appointed Israel to be God's witnesses to the world. God chose the people of Israel to continually witness to all the other nations that Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Israel, is the only God who truly exists. He chose the people of Israel to continually witness to all the other nations. Again, that Yahweh, the God who brought them out of Israel, is the only God who truly exists. And as I've done this study, it's amazing to me how many times over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God says to Israel, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. Saying, my whole purpose to bring you out of there to demonstrate graphically there's only one true of the living God. And therefore, you are to worship me exclusively, and I have ordained you to be my witnesses to the pagan Gentile nations who have departed from me. Now, substitute their own, made, uh, own homemade, handmade gods and goddesses for them to worship. In Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12, we quoted here, he said to the people of Israel, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God for him, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. And it's interesting, he goes on to say in chapter 44, verse 8 of Isaiah, You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And interestingly, the Hebrew word translated witnesses here, we point out here, the word for witness is derived from the, the root ud, which means return or repeat or do again. And so, therefore, a witness is one who, uh, by reiteration, in other words, continually repeating the same truth over and over and over again to other people, that he emphatically affirms his testimony, his testimony. In fact, if, if you were to look at uh, a couple of verses right before Isaiah 43.10, God is talking about the Gentile nations, the Gentile nations. And he makes an interesting statement about them in Isaiah chapter 43. Referring to the Gentiles, 
In fact, right at, in verse 7, he says about Israel, I've created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. God said again, I'm the one that brought the nation of Israel into existence. I created that nation. I formed it. I brought it into existence. Then he says, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. He's referring to the Gentile nations. They have eyes to see. They have eyes, but they're totally blinded to ultimate reality. They think their gods and gods that made with their own hands are ultimate reality. They have eyes, but they can't see ultimate reality. They're blinded to ultimate reality. There's only one true of the living God, the one that brought the Jews out of their slavery from Egypt. They have ears to hear, but they're totally deaf as far as ultimate reality is concerned. Ultimate reality is concerned. And then he says, Let all the nations be gathered together, let the people be assembled, who among them t- can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses. Let them bring forth their witnesses about their gods and their goddesses, that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is truth. But let the Gentiles come and say, well, this is the truth. This queen of heaven that we worship, or these other gods and goddesses. And in light of that, then he says to Israel, you are my witnesses says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And so what he saying to Israel, one of the reasons I brought you into existence as a spiritually of the whole world is for you to repeatedly, over and over and over again, witness to the pagan Gentiles, there's only one true and living God. The one who demonstrated his existence and power and authority by bringing us out of our slavery and bondage from the, from the land of Egypt and parting the waters of the Red Sea. That's the only true and living God. He said, Israel, you're to be continually witnessing to the Gentiles to that effect. And tell them, all your gods are purely man-made. They're kind of reality. Scrap them. Forget them. They can't do things for you. They can't see for you. They can't hear what you say. They can't speak to you. They can't do anything. Get rid of them. And worship the only true and the living God. The one that we worship as a nation. Because he's the one that demonstrates his existence and power by bringing us out of our slavery from, from the land of Egypt. From the land of Egypt. Now, we drop down toward the bottom here. A witness... This, again, is what a Greek scholar has said. A witness is a person who has first-hand knowledge of an event, or one who can testify on the basis of a report which he has heard. Such a person is under obligation to testify. Well, the Jews, when they were brought out of Egypt, they witnessed a great event, an incredible event, of God supernaturally parting the waters of the Red Sea and getting them safely to the other side, and then wiping out the chariot force of Egypt, when they pursued the Jews. Therefore, they had witnessed this incredible event. It's obviously supernatural. caused this to happen. And so, the, the Jews that were there that generation, and, and uh, even their descendants, as they're told about this, they were to witness. This actually happened. This is not mythology. This is an event that our ancestors witnessed with their own eyes and they experienced as they marched across the dry bed of the Red Sea, safely to the other side, and then saw the Egyptian forces wiped out as God allowed the Red Sea to come back together against them. 
Then, the next purpose he had for them was to be God's servant. To be God's servant. God said, the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He specifically stated that to them in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 55. Then in Isaiah 41 verse 8, and other uh, passage we give here from both Old and New Testament, he said, you, Israel, are my servant. I brought you into existence to serve me. It's interesting here. God delivered them uh, as slaves. He delivered them from their slavery. They were serving the Egyptians for about 400 years as slaves. So they were the servants of the Egyptians for 400 years. God delivered them from that slavery in order for the people of Israel to serve him in the world. Again, as witnesses and other things they would do in conjunction with God. To be uh, his servant. And I quote again another Greek scholar with regard to what God was saying here. Quote, the principle that no man can serve two masters embraces not merely the moment of turning to the deity in worship, but the whole of life. Alongside it, no other servant status is conceivable. Yahweh demands the total obedience of Israel, his servant. And Israel owes total allegiance to this one Lord. For the will of Yahweh is oriented to Israel. He is oriented, his plan and purpose for history, to that nation of Israel. To be his witness uh, to the world. Witness to the world. I shared with some of our folks that were, that were together earlier this evening. The director of the ministry with which I minister, the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, uh, Bill Sutter, has had interaction with a key rabbi in the land of Israel. A rabbi in Israel who has the responsibility of supervising 36 synagogues in the land of Israel. They've interacted with each other over the years. And two years ago, this past July, Bill and his wife went on their own over to Israel. They rented a car just to tour around, around the land. And this rabbi heard that he was there in Israel. And somehow he got word to, to Bill Sutter and said, I want you to come. I want to talk with you. And so Bill and his wife Annette went to talk with this, this gentleman. When they got there, he said to Bill Sutter, Mr. Sutter, you and I disagree with each other concerning the Messiah. You believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe that Israel as a nation is the Messiah. They said, I have to confess to you. I've been forced to the conclusion that my nation of Israel has failed God miserably. It has failed to carry out what God brought it into existence to be. His witness to the people of the world. We have failed. They said, I'm now being forced to conclude that in light of our nation's failure to fulfill what God brought them in existence to be and function of the world, that God is now looking to people who believe what you believe to be his representative in the world and speak out for God to the nations of the world. That's an incredible statement to be made by a key rabbi in the nation of Israel with supervision over 36 synagogues in that nation. And that's true. As we'll see later on, Israel did fail. They didn't 
follow through consistently with what God brought them into existence to be. Now, the next thing, purpose he asked for them, capital letter F, is to exist for God's glory. To exist for God's glory. Again, in Isaiah 43, verse 7, God says of Israel, I created him for my glory. I created Israel for my glory. And then in Isaiah 44, verse 23, the very next chapter, the Lord has glorified himself in Israel. He has glorified himself in Israel. Then in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, he talks about, for Israel, my glory. He calls the nation, Israel, my glory. He's saying, one of the reasons I brought Israel into existence was for my glory. But what does that mean? Well, the word that's translated glory in the Bible refers to what is impressive or influential concerning a person. So the glory of a person or thing is whatever is uh, influential and uh, that it, it demands attention, draws attention to itself, and thereby is influential. Some examples of that. In the Hebrew text of the book of Genesis, Jacob's wealth was called the glory of Jacob. What that meant was that Jacob was such an excessively wealthy man, that's what impressed the people of his generation with Jacob and made them sit up and take note of who he was and gave him tremendous influence in the lives of other people. Then, also in the book of Genesis, Joseph's very powerful position within the Egyptian government is called the glory of Joseph. What that means is it was that powerful position that Joseph held the Egyptian government that impressed huge groups of people with Joseph and gave him tremendous influence in the lives of large segments of mankind at that time. In light of that, when God says, I've created Israel for my glory, I've glorified myself in Israel, and I call Israel my glory, what he's saying is, I intend, through the nation of Israel, to so impress the rest of the world with who I am and how great I am that I can have life-changing influence in great multitudes of people all over the world. Let me state that again. What he's saying is, I've created Israel for my glory so that through my dealings with that nation, I can so impress the rest of the world with who I am and how great I am that I can have life-changing influence in multitudes of people worldwide through all the other nations here upon planet Earth. Now, the question is, how does God do that through the nation of Israel? And the answer is, he does it with the twofold way he deals with the nation of Israel historically. The twofold way he deals with the nation of Israel historically. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's a very crucial passage because back when Moses was still leading the people of Israel, God through Moses revealed to the nation of Israel, Israel, throughout your history, from Moses' time around 1400 B.C. up until the Messiah comes, I'm going to deal with you as a nation in two different ways historically. In verses 1 through 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 28, God said to the people of Israel through, through Moses, if you will listen to and obey my commandments, my word that I've given to you, I will bless you more than any other nation upon planet Earth. 
You'll always be the head nation. You'll never be the tail nation. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we'll begin with verse 1. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 1. And it, uh, it shall come to pass, God saying this through Moses, the people of Israel, it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you, if you shall hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God. And then he begins listing the blessings. Blessings shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind, the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall be your basket and your store. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies that, are, that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against you one way. The, they shall flee uh, before you seven ways. Look, if you would, please, uh, at verse 13. The Lord shall make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only. You shall not be beneath. If that you hearken unto the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day to observe and to do them. What he's saying, Israel, if you will listen to and obey my commandments, my word that I've given to you as a nation, and you consistently obey it and follow it, I will bless you as a nation more than any other nation upon planet Earth. You'll always be the head nation. You'll never be the tail nation. But then look at the contrast word, beginning at verse 15. But, but it shall come to pass, if you will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, to observe and to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he begins listing the curses. It's a long, long, long list. This is a long chapter. Goes into the 60s, as far as the number of verses are concerned. And one of the curses he pointed out to them, if you do not listen to and obey my commandments that I gave to you as a nation, my word I gave it to you as a nation, one of my curses upon you is, I'll raise up foreign powers against you. They will remove you from your homeland. They will scatter you among the nations. Will scatter you among the nations. In fact, turn over, if you would please, Verse 64, as God's spelling this out. Verse 64. And the Lord shall scatter you among all people, from the one end of the earth even unto the other. There you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. And among these nations shall you find no ease, neither shall the sole of your foot have rest. But the Lord shall give you there a trembling heart and failing of eyes and sore of mind. And your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night, and shall have none assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would God over evening. The idea is to see if I'm going to survive this day or not. And at evening you shall say, would God over morning. The idea is to see if I'm going to survive this night or not. For the fear of your heart wherewith you shall fear, for the sight of your eyes which you shall see. Look at those words. That's a graphic description 
Just one example of God doing this, a graphic description of what happened to millions of Jews in the Holocaust of World War II. Do you know, before uh, the Holocaust began, the total world population of Jews worldwide was about 17 million. That was it. About 17 million Jews worldwide. In fewer than 10 years, the Nazis and their collaborators systematically eliminated more than one-third of the total world population of Jews from planet Earth. More than six million Jews systematically eliminated. When they went into those extermination camps, they didn't know in the morning if they'd be alive that night. If they were alive that night, they didn't know if they'd be alive the next morning. For the fear of life. Fear of life. God was saying to the people of Israel, Here's how I'm going to deal with you in a twofold way throughout history for my glory. When you obey me, I bless you more than any other nation upon planet Earth. You'll always be the head nation, you'll never be the tail nation. When you disobey me, rebel against me, don't follow my word I've given to you. I will curse, vex, and frustrate you tremendously. Tremendously. Now we're going to see, Lord willing, later on, he promises, though, even though many of them will be eliminated, he will never allow them to be totally eliminated from planet Earth. He says that over and over again. makes that very, very clear. May I point something out to you? If you ever have opportunity to talk with Jewish people and you try to witness to them about Jesus Christ and the gospel, and some of them say, don't talk to me about Jesus Christ. I know what was done you know, to some of my family or my ancestors in the name of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and some of them will say, I don't understand. If we're God's chosen people, why would God allow us to suffer so terribly more than any ethnic, ethnic group? The Jews have had more attempts at, at uh, total elimination from the face of the earth than any other ethnic group in all of world history. Over and over and over again, attempts to totally eliminate them from planet earth, but they're still here. But they'll say, why would God allow that to happen to us? If you ever have them say that, take them to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Say, really, if you knew your scriptures, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. Because God back there, when your great leader Moses ordained by God to lead the people of Israel, through Moses, God told the people of Israel, here's how I'm going to deal with you as a nation historically, right up until the coming of the Messiah to planet Earth. When you listen to and obey my word, and worship exclusively me, and do what I've brought you to existence to be, I'll bless you more than any other people upon planet Earth. But if you rebel against me, and you don't listen to and obey my word that I've given to you as a nation, then this is what's going to happen to you. The tragedy is today, and I can say this because of the type of mission that I minister with, the overwhelming majority of Jewish people today in the world are totally secular and humanistic in their world life view. They could care less about God and spiritual things and know almost nothing of their scriptures, their Old Testament scriptures at all. Hardly ever read it. Some of them never read it. But they hold on to their traditions, man-made traditions, because they think that's what makes them Jewish and keeps them Jewish. And they, if, you could, if they could just see what God said here, 
That's ultimately what's behind the Holocaust and all the other persecutions that we're going to deal with in one of our other sessions, probably uh, tomorrow night and, and the next night, of how they've been persecuted and hounded. And more attempts at genocide brought upon them as a nation than any other nation upon planet Earth. God deals with them in a twofold way to impress people. And uh, our time is up for this session. We're going to pick up this point and deal further with how does he impress them, in what way does he impress the nations of the world, and see some significant things with regard to this as to why he placed that nation where he has placed it geographically upon planet Earth. That was no mistake as well. So Lord willing, about 15 minutes, we'll pick up this point.